I would let somebody know that this is the ability of scientists in the laboratory to put a trait into an organism, a crop or an animal that doesn't exist in that organism right now. So some adventitious trait that they can introduce into the genetic, the DNA, the genetics of that animal or crop, and then it gets passed on to all of their offspring. So it continues in that organism from there on, and it provides something that could be resistance to a pest, resistance to a virus. It could be a nutritional quality, something that otherwise wouldn't exist in that crop. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, people could remember when there was an effort to require labeling of what they called GMOs. And it had started in several different states that they were going to label GMOs because some people were concerned about genetic engineering and the whole term of it. So several states had initiatives going on. And then finally, there was a federal action passed a law to be able to take it to the federal level. That's been a few years ago now. And my guest today was involved then and is Sticking with that issue, Greg Jaffe, and, and Greg is with the Center for Science and the Public Interest. Hey, Greg, welcome. Good to see you again. Well, thank you very much. Uh, glad to be here. You're in a department, in an organization that takes a close interest in what's happening along these lines, and what a journey this has been. So uh, some time ago, you heard about the first case of states that were going to try to get initiatives passed to label GMO. What was that like? Did somebody say, oh my gosh, something's going on here. Let's all get a few people on the phone and find out who's all concerned and what's happening in these various states? So, I, I mean, I was not very involved in the state initiatives at the time, but there were four states. Um, I think Washington State, Oregon, California, and Colorado that all had ballot initiatives. So citizens putting on the ballot, a uh, a initiative that would have required uh, genetically modified foods to be labeled. In all four of those states, those ballots did not pass. So they got national attention and so forth. And, and the three on the West Coast uh, were very, very close. And the one in Colorado was not particularly close. So uh, my recollection was the three initiatives in the West Coast. Uh, it was very, very close, uh, almost 50-50, but they did not pass. And in Colorado, it was, it was not the case. Now, wasn't there something started in Vermont too? Right. So, so, so there were initiatives in there were ballot initiatives, and then there were also state legislatures that also introduced. So, there were lots of states that introduced uh, legislators that introduced laws uh, to require the labeling of genetically modified foods. Two states passed those laws: Maine and Vermont both passed those laws. The Maine law was was conditioned upon neighboring states also passing a law. They did not want, they felt that they did not want the law by themselves. Uh, so Massachusetts and other nearby states had to also pass the law uh, so that, the, because, uh, you know, uh, food manufacturers don't provide products for a single state. They provide them for the whole country or at least regionally. Um, Vermont law, however, did not have a 
uh, condition attached to it. And so it became uh, into effect on July 1st of 2016. So in, on July 1st, 2016, uh, all foods that were sold in the state of Vermont needed to identify whether they had genetically modified ingredients in them or not. So even at that time, there was what, maybe a half dozen or so foods that were of, of 300 or so different commodities that could have been. There was only like a half dozen or so back then that were genetically engineered, if I re- remember correctly. Maybe a couple more than that, but but that's the that's the crops that were genetically engineered. That not necessarily all the ingredients that are derived from those crops that would have been, been in your food. So so they weren't just requiring labeling of of the corn, but also ingredients made from corn that might be in the food. Mm, okay, so what we're going to talk about today is from that point. Then there was something that was had to be done after uh, action was taken by Congress. USDA was studying a, a plan to how to implement uh, disclosing uh, whether or not products were bioengineered. And then you've been involved with that. And we've now have a final plan that came up from the USDA. But Greg, I want to come back just for a couple more minutes. Back at the beginning, um, let's refresh our memories here because what was alarming people? Was there an organization or was there any kind of a, a report that got people so concerned that they felt that they needed to know about whether or not GMOs were in their foods or not? I honestly can't uh, remember what triggered it. So I, I don't think there was any one incident that triggered it. I believe that, uh, you know, gen- genetically engineered crops started being grown in 1996. And over the years, there were more and more acres of those crops. And so there were more and more ingredients going into our food supply from those crops. And uh, they've always been controversial. And uh, they were originally started by Monsanto, a company that was controversial. (laughs) And there were other reasons why they were controversial. There were parts of uh, industrial agriculture. They were new technology. People are unfamiliar with them. People are maybe uncomfortable things that are new in their foods. Uh, there was safety data that said that those foods and ingredients were safe, and FDA said that. The National Academy of Sciences said that. But there were some people who didn't want to believe that, or didn't, or had other information that they thought was credible that they weren't safe to eat or for nutritional value. Um, and then there were always issues of environmental impacts, whether they would, you know, whether they were more helpful or harmful to the environment and to our agricultural system. So they were controversial, and so there were some stakeholders who wanted them to be identified so that their that consumers who didn't want to purchase them could avoid foods that were made with those products. So that was the original impetus was to provide disclosure and allow consumers who didn't want to uh, consume products that were made with genetic engineered ingredients to, to buy them and consume them. But as I said, the National Academy of Sciences, FDA and others had said that those were safe and uh, there was no nutritional difference between those and conventional foods. And and and, and I see no reason, there, there's been no evidence to suggest otherwise. That somebody said, wait a minute, this is a mess. If we end up having something go on, a rule in Vermont that doesn't apply or maybe Maine or something else, there needs to be some sort of a national standard. And so a bill was introduced, right? So no, I mean, again, I think we can agree that 
genetically modified crops were controversial. There were people yep. on different sides, and one of the issues was should they be labeled or not. Vermont took a lead and passed a law. There were then different stakeholders who supported national legislation, others who didn't, others wanted the states to do it. A lot of the people who wanted national legislation, some of them were the food industry. They did not want 50 different state laws that would have different requirements. They don't produce food and produce labels for Vermont. And what happens if Massachusetts had different requirements? And so there was a big push for the federal government to get involved and to preempt the state laws to say that the federal government would decide what kind of disclosure there would be for genetically modified foods or ingredients and and states couldn't do that. And so I can't remember there were at least several different bills introduced into Congress about this. Um, I can't remember how many there were and who the players were, but there were bills introduced into Congress. There were hearings that were held. I actually testified at, at a hearing on the House side and on the Senate side about this issue back in 2015. And then in 2016, a law was passed, and that was the National Bioengineered Disclosure Law that was passed, and it was signed by President Obama at the end of the, the law was passed at the beginning of, of July of 2016, just after the Vermont law had come into effect. And then uh, President Obama signed that bill shortly thereafter. And then at that point, USDA sent a letter to Vermont saying, you, uh, the federal government now controls the labeling preempts state laws on this. And so you no longer can, you no longer can enforce your labeling requirements in your state. And to the food industry, they no longer needed to comply with that. Instead, they would have to comply with this new law that was passed. Did you say that was 2015? 2016. So it was a year. Summer of 2016. So it's been six years. What has been accomplished in the six years since then? So, so, so Congress passes a law, and most laws uh, tell you know what, what are the legal obligations of different parties, what's required but they don't go into all the details. So the law might say all food manufacturers must label bioengineered foods, but it doesn't tell you, you know, what words to use or where to put it on the package, you know, how big the font size should be or, or a lot of details. And so, um, you know, the government wants uniformity, the industry wants uniformity. And so Congress said, here's the law, it's 15 pages long. Uh, USDA, you have two years to put together regulations that will talk in more detail and implement this law because the law in and of itself doesn't have enough detail to, for the for the for the industry to implement it. So that required regulations to be passed in 2018. In July of 2018, you know, agencies tend to miss congressional deadlines, and in this case, they missed the deadline by about six months. But in December 2018, they uh, they finally promulgated the regulations for this, and when they did that. So that was really, let's call it January of 2019, because it was way at the right at the end of December 2018. And so they gave the industry three years to, to come in compliance with the rules. From that time. Yes. So that's why we have January 2022, because they came in three years from the time the regulations were finalized to get them to, to, to come into compliance and now disclose the information on packages. That was a little long, but that's not unusually long. I mean, it usually can take uh, it usually takes a couple of years for industry to to put together the necessary data packages to do what they need to do to get the labels printed to you know uh, get rid of the old SKUs, put in the new SKUs, and so forth. So I, I, that was a little long, but it was not uh, out of the ordinary. 
So now, in two, so now in 2022, it's finally in effect and the guidelines that what people have to do to be able to disclose whether or not foods are bioengineered is, is in effect now. Is that right? That's right. As of January 1st, 2022, all foods that one would purchase in the supermarket that fall within the regulations are required to disclose if they have a bioengineered ingredient in them. And if they don't do that, they would be in violation of the law. Now, it's not as simple as the people that had worked on those petitions or the laws had hoped originally. I think they'd all uh, thought that maybe we'd just say contains GMO or something like that. One step that happened was to determine that the term would be bioengineered. Was that a consensus right off the, right off the bat when this whole approach started that the referring to them as bioengineered foods rather than GMO or, you know, genetically engineered and so forth would be what they would say. So the law that Congress passed used the term bioengineered. So Congress chose that word. It was chosen by, by, by politicians and, and policymakers. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know what was in each of their heads as to why they chose that word, but that was the word that was chosen. Now the law did allow the discretion for the Secretary of Agriculture had discretion to use other similar terms if he or she felt that was appropriate. So one of the questions in the rulemaking that USDA looked into was whether they should use other terms, such as GMO or genetically engineered or genetically modified. In the end, Secretary Perdue, who was President Trump's Secretary of Agriculture at the time in 2018, made the decision not to use other terms. So the decision was made only to use the term bioengineer. So the term was determined, the decide, that term was chosen by Congress, and then Secretary Perdue uh, decided not to use his discretion to allow other similar terms to be used. So if I'm one of these consumers that for one reason or another was at the time concerned about GMO, what will be different now? If I go, go to the store and I buy practically anything off the shelf, um, how am I going to know whether or not that food is bioengineered? So, as I would say, I'll, I'll premise your, the answer to your question with saying that, you know, uh, consumers can choose to purchase foods that are bioengineered or choose to purchase, avoid foods that are bioengineered. Yeah. Um, and that's their, their choice to do it. And hopefully this information will help them make those decisions. But, but from a food safety or from a nutritional point of view, there is no difference between sure. a bioengineered ingredient and a non-bioengineered ingredient. Sure. So uh, there's no data to suggest difference. But that doesn't mean that consumers may want to do, choose to avoid it for whatever reason. So right. if they choose to, so what the law requires is that the food manufacturer is required to disclose the information. And they have a several different ways that they can choose. And so it's the discretion of the food manufacturer to pick the way. And it's a disclosure law, and you'll hear why in a second. So one option is to put text on the package so they can use the words contained bioengineered food or contains a bioengineered food ingredients, and they can put that on the package. So that would be the equivalent that you and I might think of as a label where, in, where, sure. where there's where there are actual text on the, the package of the food. The second option is they can use a symbol. The USDA de, de, uh, designed a symbol. It's a round circle. It can be green or it can be gray color or black and white. And it says the words bioengineered and has a little design on it. And so that is 
the second option. So uh, if a food has a bioengineered ingredient in it, the food manufacturer can choose to use that symbol if they choose on the package. Think about the organic, you sure. know, every, people may be familiar with the USDA organic symbol. This is another symbol that came out of USDA. The third choice is you can use an electron, you can make an electronic disclosure. So you can put a QR code on your package and you can put the word scan here for more information. And if a consumer wants, they can scan that with their cell phone. They will go to a website, a web page that will come up on their screen of their cell phone. And on that screen, there will be information, either the symbol, the bioengineered symbol, or the words contains a bioengineered ingredient if in fact that food has a disclosure to make. So that's the reason this bill is called, the law was called the disclosure law because some of the information is not on the package. There is also an option to uh, put a phone number to text more text information to, or a phone number to call uh, to get that same information. So, so there are a number of different ways and the food manufacturer has the choice, the discretion to choose which way they wish to present the information. You know, it just seems like it'd be a lot simpler if they simply had to either put bioengineered or derive from bioengineered or not on the label. Then uh, people have to do a QR code or make a telephone call. Well, uh, that may be the case, but um, you and I know that there's some packages have lots of inf- lots of space on the label. If you're buying a big package of of uh, a big box of cereal, but if you're buying a small M and M's candy. There may not be a lot of information, a lot of space on a on a on the package for more information, mm-hmm. and you know many legislators, members of Congress, members of the executive branch, and lots of stakeholders believe that that, that only the most important information should be on the package. And so, uh, you know, for example, uh, the ingredients, uh, whether there's an allergen. Those are mandatory information on the label, whether they're how much salt or sugar for somebody who's a diabetic or somebody who's, you know, has high blood pressure. Those may be very important information. And so, you know, one of the questions that arose in in deciding how to provide this information was how important is this information? And and, uh, if we put everything that any consumer ever wanted on the package, we might end up having uh, overload of information and consumers might turn out, turn off all that information. And uh, so. So there was the balancing, I guess, that was made by different members of Congress or whatever. But the decision was made that that this information had the option that the food manufacturers had the option of either putting it on the on the package or or to do it electronically. Well, and one of the and one of the reasons people said that electronic was they could actually put additional information, they could put more explanation that they might not put so otherwise. If you open the QR code, or if you um, now could there also be just a website shown? Uh, does it? Was that an option as well? I mean, other than the QR code, could you just say at www.greg.com or something for more information? No, no, that okay. couldn't do that. There has to be some sort of electronic digital. Uh, today, it's a QR code. Tomorrow, it could be another technology, but some way that you could uh, get directly that information. Is uh, it, is it, no, I'd seen some of the smart labels early on, and you had to really kind of dig in there to find if you cared. Uh, and... Is there there anything regulating it? Like if once they open it up so that you open up that, that it necessarily has to say it on the opening page or anything like that, bioengineered? So I believe that is a requirement that it has to be on that opening page. Um, I went to my, recently I went to two of the two supermarkets that I shop in regularly and I 
looked for packages and looked at packages and I scanned QR codes on foods that I thought might have a disclosure. And in each instance, the disclosure came right up on the on the page that that what my cell phone was taken to. And it was quite obvious. The either the text or the symbol was quite obvious on that page. So I'm not saying consumers might understand what that means, but but the information was there. So to the extent from my limited, you know, personal uh not scientifically rigorous survey yeah. uh, that information did pop up on the on the first page and it was uh, uh, obvious that that information was there yeah yeah and then the telephone number would they get a somebody that uh, answers the phone because you could also put a phone number right on for more information scan so. for more right yes I didn't, I have not called any of them to find out. I don't know whether it's a recording, whether, you know, these days you get a lot of push this for information on this, push this for information on that. I have, I don't know. I don't know. And I, to be honest with you, I've not spent time going into the details of the reg- guidances that USDA may have put out on what has to be done if you're going to choose the that telephone disclosure. Now, did CSPI um, support these changes, um, the regulation as as it's now implemented, does, did you support them? So, you know, we, we um, once the law was passed, our position was we wanted to make sure that that law was implemented as transparently as possible and as uniformly as possible uh, so that the consumers who wanted to get information could get the information. Again, whether they, the reasons they may want it, it could be different, but but we wanted to make sure there was access uh, that consumers who wanted that information had the availability to get it and was transparent. So we did, you know, as other stakeholders did, we provided comments to USDA about some of the key issues around the regulations. Uh, and in some instances, USDA took our comments into consideration and in other, in other cases they did not. Mm-hmm. What about the derived from bioengineered um, there's there were some exceptions to products that that uh, would be in that category, and I, I wasn't quite sure I understood it from what I was reading about it. Could you explain that? So, so the law says turn def, defines what bioengineering is, and bio a bioengineered food is a food that has modified genetic material, so modified DNA in it. So, if you don't have modified DNA, you're not covered by the you're exempt from the disclosure requirement, and so. When we take corn that's genetically modified, we can make a number of different ingredients from that. We could make milled corn to go into your cereal, for example, your cornflakes, um, or milled corn that might go into your um, corn flour, cornmeal, or something like that. And that would have DNA in it. So if it, that came from a genetically modified crop, that would be required to be disclosed. But if we made corn oil or high fructose corn syrup from that same corn, uh, those processes eliminate all of the DNA. And so those no longer have any uh, D- modified DNA in them, and they would not be considered bioengineered. So if you had a product that had one of those ingredients in it, it wouldn't require disclosure. This was a very controversial issue in the reg- rulemaking. Mm-hmm. Many stakeholders wanted the derived from ingredients to be cl- disclosed, and some did not want it to be disclosed. The position we took was that they should be disclosed differently. They shouldn't be considered contained. They should be disclosed as derived from. Uh, so it's a separate disclosure because if you look at corn oil and 
if corn oil from genetically modified corn and corn oil from non-genetically modified corn, they're biologically and chemically identical. So uh, because there's no DNA in them, there's no biological difference. You can't, and there's no chemical difference. If you had two bottles of oil and they were unlabeled and unnoticed, you couldn't tell which one came from genetically modified corn at all. So on some level, there's no difference. And so you might argue that you shouldn't even disclose them at all because that's misleading. Right. But we felt that it was appropriate to disclose where it came from, even if they're not any different. So that so we didn't want we wanted a different disclosure. USA decided to have that different disclosure derived from, but they chose not to make it mandatory. They chose to make it voluntary. So they said that companies could could, if they wish to, disclose derived from ingredients using the specific separate disclosure symbol or words. So, so those certain companies uh, would be happy to have that flexibility, especially if they did, obviously if they didn't want to do it, they wanted to have that have that choice. It's just confusing to uh, I would think uh, the whole area is kind of a complex area for people to keep track of. But there, if if uh, consumers are concerned, the uh, non-GMO does that still exist? to be able to have the, the certification of non-GMO on foods in, in stores? So just before we get to that, so just to follow up on the, sure, on sure. the voluntary, I mean, all laws and all regulations, you know, nothing is 100%. There's always exemptions. Um, and so there are a number of exemptions here, or and so the, 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 mm-hmm. the highly derived, the derived from ingredients, you could argue, are exempted from, from the law or the regulations, right. but then they allow them to voluntarily be let in. So the question in all these cases is, you know, are there, do the exemptions swallow the law? Are there so many exemptions that it makes the law meaningless or is that, or the exemptions make sense? You know, there's always going to be a de minimis exemption for things, you know, even in your current foods you buy, they list all the ingredients, but there might be some, some little trace of something that's not included in the ingredients because it's de minimis. It's so small that it doesn't get included. You know, those are the kinds of things. There's always those, those kinds of examples. So anyway, to your question about the non-GMO. So the law says only two things about non-GMO. One is it says that organic foods don't aren't required to be labeled or disclosed as bioengineered. Uh, the organic standard requires that if you're if you're certified organic, you're you're not allowed to use genetically modified seeds or genetically modified animals right. in any of the ingredients in your product. So right. by definition, so even if you had some small unintended presence, unintentional amount, you still wouldn't need to disclose it in your organic food. Uh, as long as you have an organic certification, by definition, you don't have to disclose bioengineered content in it because in all likelihood, you don't have any. Um, and you therefore can call those foods non-GMO. Mm-hmm. Uh, the law also said that just because a food is not disclosed as bioengineered does not automatically make it non-GMO. So again, like I said, uh, there may be de minimis amounts or or different reasons why something's exempted, so they don't have to disclose. But that doesn't automatically mean that you're non-GMO. Think of the world, and in, in, it's not it's not bi- it's not binary. You're either GMO or not GMO. Right. There's GMO. There are things that aren't. There's disclosure of bioengineered. There are things. There are products that don't require disclosure, but they're not necessarily non-GMO. They don't. You know. So. Uh, the law is silent on non-GMO, and USDA did not include that in their regulations. So, uh, 
there are non-products that can either self-certify or use a private certifier to identify that they are non-GMO, and those exist throughout the supermarket. Uh, some of those are more, um, the, the, the issue with those is consumers may not know what are the standards that are being used, and right. they may not know whether or not they're accurately being uh uh, well, and then there's actually being certified by th that, that those foods actually meet those standards. Well, and there's been abuses that I see too, as they're putting products, putting non GMO on a product that, you know, it's like water, you know, it's like, it, there's no, it never has been a question. You know, there's so many products that are, don't have any kind of bioengineered process, but they still label them as non GMO and they've got the little logo of non GMO and it's, it's misleading. It's honest in a way. I mean, it's true that they're non GMO, but they're putting them on products that are just kind of, I think, raise more con confusion than clarity. But no, I, and I agree with you. And I've written several blog articles about that issue that, that they are misleading because they're making a distinction that doesn't exist and they're trying to get consumers to pay a premium for their product, claiming their product is different from another product when in fact, both of those products are identical. One just has identified this. You're becoming an expert on genetic engineering or bioengineered, uh, probably perhaps even more than you ever intended to because you've been living with this. Have you gotten to the point that you can explain what uh, what this is when somebody wants that uh, that 30 second explanation at a, at a at a party or something, or uh, that's a, a casual something like almost a, your elevator speech of somebody. What is bioengineering? You, are you able so? To I would so so. First of all, I would use the term genetic engineering. I wouldn't use the bioengineering because I think yeah, that sure. that's okay. not as accurate a term. But but I, I would let somebody know that this is the ability of scientists in the laboratory to uh, put a trait into an organism a crop or an animal that doesn't exist in that organism right now. So some uh, adventitious trait that they can introduce into the genetic, the DNA, the genetics of that animal or crop, and then it gets passed on to all of their offspring. So it continues in that organism from there on. Um, and it provides something that, that could be resistance to a pest, resistance to a virus. It could be, you know, a, a nutritional quality, something that that otherwise wouldn't exist in that crop. And then now there's new technologies coming. Um, CRISPR, we've heard talked about a lot. Will CRISPR be considered the CRISPR technology? Will that be considered as as bioengineering? So CRISPR is a technique. It allows you to go in, go and uh, cut DNA and and alter DNA. Um, so depending on what you do with the CRISPR molecule may depend on whether that particular product is covered under the bioengineered disclosure. So again, what is considered a bioengineered food is if it has modified DNA in it. So if you use the CRISPR molecule to go in and make a repair and change the uh, DNA of an organism or to introduce a new gene or a new sequence into the organism to improve upon it, then those would be covered because they have, and then if you made a food product from that organism, then you would, uh, and that and that DNA remained in the food, food ingredient, that would be covered because it has modified DNA. But if you take CRISPR and all you do is, uh, many, many scientists are using CRISPR to knock out genes. So they go in and turn off 
an existing gene in an organism. So they might go into a corn plant and knock out a, a, a gene that allows maybe more oil production or, you know, the, the, the seed to have more oil in it or something like that. If all they're doing is knocking out a gene, and so they're not introducing any modified DNA, uh, then arguably they don't fall within the definition of bioengineered food and they wouldn't require disclosure. So, so I don't think we can definitively say with a technique like CRISPR, Chris, it's not whether CRISPR's in or out, it's whether the product that is made from the CRISPR has modified DNA or not in it. You know, I think that, um, I think this can be really confusing. Uh, Hopefully we're trying to, we're clarifying things and you're clarifying, reminding me of things I've forgotten. And since this all started, because it seems like we've been talking about these conversations and concerns for some time. And yet I think the, a bottom line though, that you've mentioned a couple of times already, Greg, is that there's really no evidence that there's reason to be concerned about the safety or helpfulness of the process itself. I mean, that is the overriding message for, for consumers. There's no research is there that's demonstrating that there has been some bad consequence that occurs to people from consuming products that have been bioengineered. Right. So we can only talk about the current crops that are grown and the current animals that are on the market today, but there has been no evidence to show that any of the foods or ingredients made from those crops or animals uh, have any uh, harmful effects to humans. And so, yeah, so everybody listening to this podcast, and I think can take some comfort that if they eat a food that has a bioengineered ingredient, that that's not going to be problematic to them. Now, there's that still means that there's some people who may want to avoid those. There clearly is evidence of some environmental impacts of genetically modified crops. Some of those impacts are positive and some of those impacts are negative. And there are definitely some socioeconomic impacts of biotech crops and some of those who arguably are positive and some are arguably negative. And so the consumer might choose again to want to support bioengineered bioengineering in our food and somebody might want to avoid bioengineering in our food. And the hope is that this disclosure law provides some of that information for that subset of consumers who really want to know this information. The information is not necessarily the easiest to find. It's not necessarily the easiest to interpret, but for consumers that this is important to, whichever side you're on, um, hopefully this disclosure law and regulations provide some of that information to those consumers. You mentioned that there's some positives and some negatives. Uh, I've got to go back and ask if you give an example of that. You were saying that there there might be some some indications of where there, you know, again, could be some negative impacts. Uh, did I hear you right? There have, I mean, so, um, the, you know, there's so... So, for example, um, but there's a big argument about whether biotech crops increase pesticide use or decrease pesticide use. Ah, okay. And, you know, we have to look at that on a case-by-case basis. And so in some instances, they have increased pesticide use, and in other instances, they've decreased pesticide use. So I can find lots of good evidence that, you know, uh, BT uh, corn and cotton plants that have uh, genes from Bathyllus thuringiensis that are a biological pesticide have have significantly decreased more harmful chemical insecticides that have been used in the environment. Um, On the other hand, we have Roundup Ready crops. I think you mentioned those that that allow the farmer to use more Roundup. And those, in fact, have increased the use of Roundup. Now, we did a study and we looked at all the data and 
While it increased the use of Roundup, it decreased the use of other more harmful, more toxic herbicides at the same time. But now there's resistance developing, and now farmers are using a second and a third herbicide, and some of those are pretty pretty toxic stuff. So that's why I say there are, you know, you there are, there's there's no question that the products of this technology have caused impacts. Some of them have been positive, some of them have been negative, and some people may like some of those impacts or, or dislike some of those impacts and might choose to purchase or not purchase to support or not support those products. Man, there's a lot to know. And it's not going to get any simpler. I mean, there's a lot for people to try to understand. And and towards that, Greg, I mean, uh, if people want to understand bioengineering, summarize maybe. Uh, what do you tell people if they say, um, how do I research this more? How do I better understand the, the rule? And maybe remind them again on, on getting perhaps into the practice of checking it out, whether or not their bioengineering has been used. So, so unfortunately, I don't think there have been good education materials about this new disclosure that I'm aware of. I don't think industry has provided those. I don't think USDA has provided those. So I think there's a dearth of information for a consumer who wants to understand where to look for these disclosures or what they mean um, and what's covered and not covered. There aren't, I don't think, I'm not aware of any good handy uh, guides that I could point them to. USDA uh, Agricultural Marketing Service has a website with all the guidances and the regulations and everything, but that's more, and they have some frequently asked questions, but that's really more attuned to to food manufacturers and stakeholders and retailers. It's not really um, super consumer friendly. So, so I don't think I would look there, but, but that is the place one could look. Uh, FDA has a good uh, Feed Your Mind uh, website with a series of pamphlets and stuff that talk generally about bioengineering or genetic, genetic modification, uh, what crops are genetically modified, why people do this, what's the safety data around it, you know, what are the issues around it. So that's, I think, very good information to learn generally about this technology and how it's utilized in our food supply, but they don't really talk about the disclosure, so they wouldn't provide the disclosure. Um, and so, you know, consumers are going to be left to, you know, organizations like mine, Center for Science of Public Interest or others, you know, we have a Nutrition Action Health newsletter that our members get and our subscribers get, and this month's issue, the January-February issue, had a two-page spread on, on sort of what is what's the what's the law what's the regulations require and what you might see in the supermarket and how to interpret it a little bit um so you know i think there'll be other some people think of us as very credible and science-based and, and independent and so they would value that information so i think you know i would tell people if they're interested uh to ask to do some research but but take everything on the web with a grain of salt, <laughs> uh, but go to reputable sources that they are comfortable with. And that might mean going to their grocery store if they belong, you know, they have a Safeway or a Giant or a Wegmans and maybe asking them and maybe those supermarkets or those retailers will provide them some information, uh, you know, neutral information about what this, what this is all about. And so if somebody wants to go to your site, and find the information that you have you have available and see about membership and so forth. What is it for Center in Science and Public Interest? So our website is www.cspinet.org, yeah. um, and that you know we, we uh, there's a separate page for the Biotechnology Project that has again 
not a lot of consumer friendly. And as we do have a frequently asked questions pamphlet that that is kind of, that consumers could look at, but um, a lot of our work is policy work. So a lot of that is policy, but overall the website does have a lot of useful information for consumers who care about uh, issues around their food. I really appreciate your taking this time to have this conversation with me today. But I also uh, want to just ask you, what should we look at next? Uh, what's coming down the road in this area that have to do with bioengineered? Is there is there an issue emerging or something left that's going to get attention now? Well, I think, you know, we're continuing to see more technology used in the produce, production of our food. And so, you know, we've seen genetically engineered crops and animals. We're now seeing gene editing being utilized. And I think we'll also see, you know, uh, we also now see a lot of uh, mic microbes being used in fermentation to produce uh, mm. proteins and compounds. That So you may look in the store and see non-dairy ice creams that, that are have the dairy proteins in them, but they were produced by microbes instead of by animals. So um, they're not, so those type of things. And, and we're also may see cell cultured meat. So there are other sort of biotechnologies uh, that are being utilized. Uh, these are, you know, have biotechnologies in them that are being utilized for uh, alternate uh, uh, production of meat, alternate production of proteins and, and plant-based foods. So I think that's an area that will be up and getting, continuing to grow in the coming years. Are you going to be involved with those issues? Those are some issues that I am getting involved in, yes. Going to keep you busy, Greg. And we'll have to have you come back and talk about those. So I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk today. Oh, no problem. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 